Yeah, I think sometimes when people communicate the gospel, they try to, with the best of intentions, indicate that if you've got a messed up life, then giving your life to Jesus is going to make it all better. And certainly, if you are have been living unwise and selfish and in unrighteous ways, there's a lot of mess that comes with that. And submitting your life to the Lord uh, is is your best course of action. There are, and although you may be forgiven, there are, you still have to live in the mess that's been made by your unwise choices. When you think about the profound influence of the Bible on the world, the way that it has shaped our culture, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, it's probably a good idea that you know at least what it says. It's going to be about us taking and reading the Bible. Well, welcome back to the Take and Read podcast. Back in the studio, LJ McCullough, Pastor LJ. How you doing, my friend? Good, man. What's up? How's it going? It's going well. It's yeah. going well. Yeah. Uh, last episode, I was on the road with Bernie at the T4G conference, and that is just just getting the fill, getting both <laughs> barrels filled and ready uh, to to get after it. I mean, just time in the Word, yeah, yeah. experiencing other people preaching and teaching, and uh, it's just so encouraging. Have you been to T4G before? That was my first time. Have okay. you been? Not yet. Okay. It's on my list, though, okay. for sure. Uh, so... Yeah, it was uh, still just reflecting on that. There were times where the pastors uh, would, after they would preach, they would kind of sit in kind of an interview session okay. uh, and talk about life and how they spend time in the Word, how they, uh, yeah, how they handle some of the the elements of being a pastor okay. and uh, working with people, and so it was really encouraging. Any like central theme for the conference? Uh, it was the conference was called Last Word, okay. and so it looked at um, just it kind of reflected back on I guess I think it started in like two thousand eight or something like that. Okay, I don't know. It looked at past conferences oh. and just the idea that the Word of God being the most important thing we can be about, and as pastors, the thing that that is our message is the gospel. Yeah. Um, no clever, creative message uh, that we could come up with that would supersede or be more vital yeah. uh, in our life and the life of the people we shepherd. It's, it's a good word, man. So super, I mean, because that's tempting. It's tempting to to somehow try to come up with some creative or helpful ways to get people to understand yeah, yeah. who God is but there's nothing better than the pure gospel than the word. And, you know, I think maybe on this, this episode, it would be, it would be helpful to, now that I think about it, unpack what is the gospel, you know? And, and again, one of the reasons why I love having you on is because you get to articulate complex things (laughs) to our, our kids, to the kiddos. And so, there's a lot of a lot of conversation and, and gospel can sometimes be a buzzword in the yeah, Christian buddy. faith. But if you had to if somebody listening right now is like, okay, you keep saying that word, what are we talking about? 
Big G or little G. Because you've got the Gospels. That's right. right. There's four books in the New Testament or um, parts of the New Testament that reference the Gospel. you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are Gospels. So that's a, a genre. Yeah, some people consider the whole Word of God. The whole Word of God is to the, be the, gospel. the Gospel. Yeah. The the Greek word is literally good news. Yeah. And so this idea of heralding good news was not a not a Christian invention, but it was a an idea from the ancient world that when news of a battle won or news from a king, there would be somebody that would go forth and and share this good news of okay. something with yeah. a people group. Yeah. And so when Jesus says he's he comes preaching the good news, what's the good news, LJ? Hey, it's a great question. So if I'm in a classroom with kids, I'll ask that question, and we're gonna we're gonna get good answers, no doubt. We're gonna get kids that say, "Well, the Bible is the gospel." I'm like, "You're right," and you know, <laughs> the Book of John is the gospel. Yes, you're right. It was like, okay, so. Are we talking little G gospel or big G gospel? This is the way I, I like to approach it with kids. If we're talking big G gospel, I want you to think John three sixteen. Okay. This this central piece of not just the New Testament, but the whole Bible, that God would send his son in the form of a man to mm-hmm. take on sin, though innocent, dies as if he is guilty because he's taken on our guilt and shows that he has authority over sin, over death, by overcoming it. He doesn't stay in the grave. And so I'll say that, my friends, is the big G gospel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's an interesting, a few years ago I went through and was wrestling with how do the the apostles and how did Jesus in that first century when it's when they articulated the gospel message this good news what what was contained in it and it's to a certain extent there are sometimes facts that are shared yeah actual historical things like Jesus's life his death his resurrection so these are historical events and facts around the gospel these yeah. things took place then there's the the story of the gospel that sometimes he's referred to as the son of David yeah. or the son of man. And there's a larger narrative that is true in human history that involves us and involves him, Jesus, involves God's covenant people and all humanity. It's wild. And emanates from the, the creation of Genesis 1 and 2 and Genesis 3 where the fall takes place and that sin enters the world. And so there's this this bigger story that's at play with God, humanity, this chosen people called the Jews. Yeah. Their whole storyline and culture, yeah. how he enters into that and he fulfills prophecies and things that were to come. And, and there's this role of the Messiah yeah. A savior, one who would, an anointed one who would deliver. And so there's the story of the gospel. There's a thread. You got the, the facts, text. you have the story, and then you have the significance. Yeah. Where we start to experience the meaning of this good news. Okay, I recognize my sin. You recognize your sin. There was a point at which when we became aware of that, we also became aware of this one 
a man who lived historically, Jesus of Nazareth, mm-hmm. that proved to be the Son of God, that was fully God, fully man, and his life that was perfect was laid down. No one took it from him. Yeah. He gave it. He died. Somehow his death and his blood covers our brokenness, mm-hmm. our sin, and it's by faith that we trust and have full confidence in who he is and what he's done on our behalf. Yeah. Demonstrate that faith by living in obedience, not earning it, That's but right. living That's right. as a demonstration that we believe that. Yeah. Um, so in Galatians, this has always tripped me out. Um, I think it's Galatians 3, Paul is talking about Abraham, and he he says, or he writes, that the gospel was preached to Abraham, given the promise that Abraham had been given, mm-hmm. that his seed or his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky or sand on the ground. Yeah. Well, how's that promise fulfilled to Abraham? Well, years down the road, here comes Jesus, and those who place their faith in Christ, Galatians 3 says, they become the sons of Abraham. Mm-hmm. And it's by faith. By faith. By faith. Yeah. Man. And uh, one of the things that came out in the T4G conference that was awesome, and uh, if you're listening to this episode, I'm putting links in the last episode notes that link to some of the sermons preached during that uh conference that are video sermons so you can oh that's sweet uh it's really good yeah one of those is pastor john piper yeah and he talks about the fact that salvation and justification are not the most important thing okay and you're like, what, what, what? I guess <laughs> like Christians, we're talking about salvation all day long. That's like what I'm thinking right now. And so, he so what said is that if you realize and read your Bible, that salvation was simply a means to an end. There's something more that God is up to in just, than just covering your sins and keeping you from hell. Okay, I guess. But he saved you for a life for reuniting with God himself. The whole point of Jesus living, dying, resurrecting does cover our sin and justifies us so that we can now be in relationship with God. The, okay. the goal of the gospel, the goal of this good news of salvation is that we are now reunited with the creator of the universe. Yeah, I got you. That's the goal. Amen. And you're like, well, wait, John, what are you doing here? And then he like lands the plane. You're like, oh, okay, 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 cool. I I can be done. And it's not just semantics though, but we can spend a lot of time emphasizing salvation as the primary. Oh, for sure. I mean, but realizing that that's that's not where it ends. That's that's significant, but that's not the most significant thing. But a reuniting with the God of the universe and a life lived in Him. And for him, that's that's the goal. Hey, I, I resonate with that. Like, yeah, think about kids ministry. Think about the church. Um, and think about the times where it feels like we get people to the point of salvation. They make a decision to follow Christ. They realize they need Him, and then, hey, you're good. Like, 
No, no, no. God has this whole plan to use yeah. you for the rest of your life. And that's a fun ride. It is. That's so. Anyway, that's something that I wrestled with out of that conference. Um, anything the Lord's been kind of doing in your time in the Word? So uh, I am taking a Hebrew class. Yeah. I am getting towards the end of that class. When you say Hebrew, you're not studying like Hebrew culture. Correct. The language. The language of Hebrew, which is the Old Testament, is originally written in Hebrew. So now you're gaining access to the original language yeah. of the Old Testament. Okay, tell which me about that. Which is a that. lot of fun. So there's some insight that you pick up in studying the Hebrew language in the Old Testament. And so uh, over the last several months, I've been translating the whole book of Ruth, the whole book of Esther, and starting Jonah. Okay. And so I've been using that as kind of my devotional time as well. Um, because you got to you slow down and you focus on individual words and definitions of those words and slowing down. I, I feel like the spirit has done more in my heart with passages that I've read before. And that's just been a fun time. It's been a really fun time. Cool. I want to, I, I, I wonder if any of that will come into play today in our text. Look, I have no idea what we're looking at. So no, you we'll don't. See. <laughs> uh, so we, we're going to jump in right now. You want to get into it? Let's do Let's it. Let's get into it. Okay. So we are going to be in Mark chapter six. We are looking at verses 14 through 29. That's a, a lengthy pericope, but it's a necessary section. Like we can't parse it out. We got to look you. at the whole narrative here and uh, we're going to get into, you know, we, this so far has been, as we've looked in the gospel, we've been tracking with Jesus, mm-hmm. his disciples, uh, the apostles, ones, some of the disciples that he kind of sectioned out. They've been sent out. They've been commissioned. They've been doing things. They've been exercising authority, mm-hmm. which has been a big thing. Uh, there have been times where healing has taken place, demon possession and driving out of demons has taken place he's he's done miraculous things like calm the waves and the wind he's yeah. uh you know he's he's exercising and demonstrating the power of the kingdom and the coming of the kingdom yeah people are taking notice yep uh and so now some different characters enter the scene in this gospel and so it'll be interesting to see as we kind of chew on this in light of everything else that's happening, what what do we do with it? Yeah. All right, so we're going to jump into, we are reading from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible translation. So uh, if you're tracking along uh, at home, this is the translation. So if you hear or see words that are different uh, as we go through that, th- that's just a great place to start to wrestle with. I wonder why that difference. Yeah. Um, so, And it forces you, if you're, you know, listening to one translation while reading another, it forces that slowdown to occur and you go, wait, what? What's going on? So, all righty. And by the way, we didn't get any kind of requests for your voice. I was surprised. <laughs> Maybe I'm the only one just so that fascinated. Me up that we did that. Uh, but at least we have that recording of you saying those phrases from last time. I'll take it. All right. All right, let's jump in. Uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 14. King Herod heard about it because Jesus' name had become well known. uh, Some said John the Baptist has been risen or raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. 
Still others said, he's a prophet like one of the prophets from long ago. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. An opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. When Herodias' own daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. He promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? John the Baptist's head, she said. At once she hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. Although the king was deeply distressed because of his oaths and guests, and the guests he did not want to refuse her, the king immediately sent for an executioner, commanded him to bring John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about it, they came and removed his corpse and placed it in a tomb. Wow. Okay. We got to deal with it. (laughs) We got to jump into this uh, for sure. So true to form, we first have to process what does it say? And it's interesting because you've got, it's almost like in a movie when you... You have a scene, and then there's a flashback. Like that's essentially what's happening, because you it starts out King Herod heard about it. Okay, he's he's heard about well, what's the it here? Yeah. Um, he he's it says because Jesus's name had become well known. Um, the previous verse references. Uh, people being healed, yeah. uh, demons being dr- driven out. So he's heard of it, most likely Jesus's ministry. Yeah, all those things. All of those things. Like he's now, Herod is this uh, this ruler in the region. What do we need to know about him, perhaps? That's a great question. Uh, we've talked on this podcast before a little bit about there's this this sense of kind of the Herodians were a political Jewish party yeah. that had kind of been in cahoots with the Roman authorities. And so although Rome is in authority, total authority over the region, there had been this kind of relational association with those in power that the Herodians had. And so they had kind of developed a, a friendship with the Roman authorities and the Roman authorities allow this political party to remain in power, but it's, it's not a total power. They have an authority of some sort. So King Herod has authority. Yes. 
but not elevated authority. Right. Right. So if things don't go well under his leadership, somebody above him is going to go, hey, we yeah. got we to gotta figure this yes, out. Yes, we got to keep the peace. Like, what are you doing? Okay. And there was a sense in which, you know, you have uh, the Roman governor and prefect of that region, yeah. but there's still going to be a sense in which, well, the Jews, this people group over here, have their own kind of leadership as well. So we're going to trust for, they're going to run that, but they're going to run that under our authority. And so there is this sense in which Roman governors and prefects are going to kind of be in relationship with the Herodians or the their authority. You know, some might even wrestle with, you know, their kingship, but okay. it, I don't know that it would be fully realized kingship. And then you've got the Jewish religious authorities, so the high priest, yeah. that are going to also have some dealings with this political party, the Herodians, who are in power. So it's a very kind of mixed, you know, bag. And, and this comes up quite a bit or is seen towards the trial and execution yeah, yeah, of Jesus. for sure. When he goes back. And you've got, yeah, he's going to different people and they're like, no, I'm not going to sign off on this. No, you, this is your thing. And so you see all of that kind of abdication of authority, like people not wanting to be on the hook for this thing. And so Herod is the head of that party, the Herodians, and it's a dynasty. It's yeah. been around. And he's a, he's got an authority to obviously execute and anybody within his realm, he's got rights to do that. But there's a sense in which he's kind of beholden to the high priest and the religious authority. But his his authority is political. Yeah. And it's only allowed because the Romans are good with him. Yeah. So that's who we have. That's who Herod is. And so it's an interesting kind of political religious thing that's yeah. happening. And he's aware of... This guy, this guy that's walking around, that's healing thing, people, casting out demons, exercising, like doing these signs and wonders that are gaining a lot of attention. And he's now beginning to wonder, well, who is this guy? Yeah. Is it legit? Is this legit? Because the last time he encountered someone like that, that kind of made him a little nervous because he wasn't quite sure, but he knew he was a holy man. It yeah. was John the Baptist. So he has this kind of, there's this flashback that occurs because he's heard of this Jesus, is well known, and that some are now saying that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. And that's why he has miraculous powers at work in him. Others said, no, it's Elijah. Still others said a prophet like one of the prophets from long ago. And so these are all categories that Herod's going to be familiar with, being a Jew, mm -hmm. and probably nervous about. Mm -hmm. Now, why he's nervous, we don't know, but there's probably some sense in which maybe his authority is going to be taken away, overthrown, questioned. Something. Something makes him nervous about this. Yeah. Um, but it, it makes sense. If, if you've been a person in power and then somebody else is gaining fame... Well, the heart of the people, the mind of the people is going to go towards whoever that is. And if that person proves to be legit, he's going to end up having a solid following. Right. And so who's to say, especially then before they had a bigger picture of, of who Jesus was, who's to say that Jesus wasn't going to lead his own rebellion? Right. 
and turn things around, go against King Herod. And there's a sense in which, in verse 16, when Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded, has been raised. And he's, he's indicting himself in that. He's like, wait a minute. It could be the, the guy that I had beheaded and killed and executed publicly. And then you get the story of how that played out. Okay, how is that. it that he yeah. is on the hook for this? And you can see that it was an unjustified killing. Oh, no doubt. Like he, the, the story is recounted that Herod has every reason to be afraid of that scenario and that he was in the wrong for beheading someone he identified as a holy man. He said it himself. Yeah. So, mm. yeah, there's the whole scene about, <laughs> you know, he's having this party. His wife, who is his brother's wife previously, like that's all kinds of twisted. Oh, buddy. And he's like, that's not lawful, but I'm going with it. Yeah. So he's, John's been confronting him about his, his very improper marriage to his brother's wife. And so she apparently likes being married to Herod. Yeah. And she's very upset with John the Baptist for making this a thing. And so she's got a grudge against him is what the text says. And can't do anything about it until this moment presents itself. Her daughter dances, makes everyone really pleased with that dance. And Herod, for whatever reason... Could have been alcohol. Who knows what's involved there? But he's like, man, I'm so glad for that. I'm going to give you up to half of my kingdom. Like, I don't know. It's wild. That must have been some kind of dance. You, so, okay, in talking about Hebrew, studying, yes, studying yes. Esther, it's almost it's exactly what happens when when Esther comes before the king. I mean, there's there's no dance, but but she puts on a banquet for him. Um, for King Xerxes or Ahasuerus, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Look at you it. flexing those Hebrew Amen. pipes. Um, and so he's really pleased with the event, with the banquet. It probably had a little bit of alcohol and is excited about it, really thankful, joyful guy. And everything in Esther's like over the top, right? And so at the end of that, he asks, what do you want, my queen? I'll give you anything up to half my kingdom. And she's like, let me throw you another festival. And then the same thing happens. And then he says again, what do you want? I'll give you anything up to half my kingdom. And then she lays out her request. So is there something like in that ancient cultural context that like there's clearly a precedent for that kind of behavior here? Yeah. But back in the Esther time frame, is that a normal way that a king would respond when really pleased with something? Is that a way of showing honor? Is there... It's definitely a way of showing honor, right? But it's unrealistic to say up to half the kingdom. Is that, though, a demonstration for just how wealthy and powerful a ruler is, that they giving up to half their kingdom for such a a small thing that it's like... Well, man, he must have. He must be in a good spot because <laughs> yeah. he can give up half to. Because 
so in it, both cases, it happens publicly, yeah. like here and in that Esther yeah. case. It's it's unwise regardless, but I do think it's a sign of honor. Like I have this lavish lifestyle, this luxury. I have all these things, and I want to share my abundance with you based upon what we've experienced. But did you didn't earn half the kingdom, right? Like that doesn't make sense. So, so any request that comes in that's not half the kingdom is probably going to get the thumbs up. Is that is it up to half the kingdom? Is that a like a a phrase? Is that like hyperbole that's understood at that time? Like not actually half the kingdom, but it's a it's a phrase. It's a gesture of just how thankful I am that I'm willing to do this. Yeah, but yeah. when we get into the the room with the lawyers, like you're not actually getting half. Exactly. Like, so I, I think it goes both ways. I think you're going to see some people that think it's literal, like absolutely it, it's half. Then other people are going to so no, like it's you can have a lot of stuff. The king wants to hook you up. Yeah. Yeah. Like I think of other ways where we we exaggerate in order to make a point. Yeah. Right. Um, this is the best yeah. hamburger I've ever had. And, and you know, if you have a middle schooler in your family, which I have a couple, <laughs> they'll say, "Really, the best? Yeah. Like you've you've kept a list of all the burgers you've ever eaten in your life, and this ranks as yeah, the best." It's the best. It's, it's like, oh, dude! No, an, another way to saying. think about it is like. Hey, you ate a ton of burgers last week. Yes. Well, you didn't eat 2,000 burgers or 2,000 pounds of burgers. Right. You just ate a lot of burgers. Yeah. Some of that language is fun in, in the New Testament, the Old Testament. Coming up, so, trying yeah. to figure out some of those idioms. So maybe that's something that's at play here. Yeah. It seems like that's a possibility, that it's it's a gesture of just an exaggeration to demonstrate sentiment right that yeah man i'm so pleased with this i'll give you up to half my kingdom but not really I, yeah. we don't know but she doesn't take up to half the kingdom she asks for just give me his head on a platter and that's where that idiom comes from you know we we have in our culture when you're when you're doomed yeah. your fate is sealed it's like man head on a platter like that's a a thing that's it and this is where it comes from uh, and so you you have this recounting of, if anything, this retelling of this scenario just shows clearly how unlawful the death of John the Baptist was, and so how it may give some rise to why Herod has some nervousness or fear yeah. around this other one that he's hearing about, this Jesus, who's clearly demonstrating that same kind of holy authority anything else stick out to you about yeah so i'm i'm looking down in verse 20 says herod feared john and protected him knowing he was a righteous man and holy man herod feared john Mm -hmm. you think okay if he feared john why would he keep him around because he knew he was holy then what's the point of fearing him like i i don't I think there's a struggle within him of what to do with John before he's even beheaded. Mm-hmm. He clearly has the authority to do something with him. If you're scared of him, then why keep him around? Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that he wanted to behead him. I just think it's interesting that John is still there, that he hasn't done something with him yet until that request is made. Yeah. I think um, there's a lot of details that we could kind of, 
go after here and, and track down mm-hmm. to really kind of get into the nuance. Mm-hmm. He's He's got this this big banquet, nobles, military commanders, leading men of Galilee. So this is a, he is holding the best of the best, the most powerful, authoritative people in that region in his house. He's at a banquet. He now makes a show of, you know, he's pleased with this dancing. He says, you know, I'm so pleased. I'm going to offer you up to half my kingdom. And now he's got a safe face. Because what's been asked of him, although he knows and has protected John the Baptist up to this point because yeah. he's righteous and holy, he's now painted himself into a corner. And in order to preserve himself, his own reputation, his own honor yep. versus shame in the eyes of these most noble dignitaries of the community, he does something that he knows himself is wrong. And I think more than anything, what stands out to me is... All up until this this episode, uh, you know that we see here of of Herod and John the Baptist, we've seen Jesus, and he's been teaching as one who has authority, yeah. and he's been demonstrating his authority, and his authority gives life. It's righteous, and it's pure. Yeah. And here we now have a snapshot of somebody who is in that region who has the claim of authority. But we see it's unrighteous, it's unholy, and it's impure, and it's completely broken. And so, if anything, I see these two portraits of authority. Yeah, the contrast is, and I go, is crazy. Herod is illegitimate, and his authority produces death, whereas Jesus produces life. Yep. This human authority of Herod that's so politically muddy and mixed and just a facade has is is when it's on display it can be clearly seen for what it is yeah whereas jesus is is unquestionable yeah everyone recognizes it all these multitude of people the demonic the waves the winds everybody recognizes it as pure true and good and man's authority in this scenario especially herod Lacking of wisdom. It lacks all of it. Man. And it says he made that promise before she made the request. You know, I'll give you this as a promise, but it it says he does it as an oath, so they can't reverse it. Right. It's going to happen. Yep. So not wise. No. So standing back and seeing kind of these big, broad brushstrokes and recognizing in that moment the particular meaning that it has maybe for not only those present with John or with King Herod, but also Mark's audience. Like what, what are they to see about this? Why is this episode here? Why is this snapshot right in the middle of the commissioning of the 12 and and those apostles sent out exercising authority on behalf of God? Whereas this one who's exercising authority supposedly on behalf of God is so twisted and broken. Why do we see this here? Yeah. It's our major takeaway. I think just starting to dig into it, um, you're going to see more opposition as we go forward with the authority of Jesus and how he's approaching his ministry. And then what 
other people, King Herod may think about what's going on, the religious leaders, what they think right. is going on. Um, you know, when we think about stories with kids, we think of here's the good guy, here's the bad guy. John the Baptist is painted as the good guy here, no doubt. Yeah. King Herod's painted as the bad guy, no doubt. But um, this is one of those stepping stones to something coming later in the story, I feel like. And so that good guy, bad guy thing is going to be at play to the to the end of uh, the life of Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that that challenges me in this is as a pastor, there is a level of authority that has been bestowed on me by God. Mm-hmm. There's a, a mantle of responsibility. I will give an account to the Lord for mm-hmm. the way that I have been a shepherd to his people, an under shepherd, because I truly believe Jesus is the shepherd. Yeah. And there is a clear display of right before this is Jesus commissions the 12 apostles to go out and take nothing with them except the one tunic and a walking stick and go into houses and go faithfully and fully on their confidence and faith in Christ's provision for them and not providing for themselves. Yeah. And then also the results. He says, you're going to go into some house, and if they reject you, you dust off your feet, and you keep, move on. Keep it moving. And you just leave the results to him. You just continue to act out of faith with the message that he's given us. Versus this authority is demonstrated that, that King Herod has that is unwise, unholy, only focused and concerned about himself and his own preservation and just how it leads to destruction and death for people. Yeah. And one what causes flourishing. Yeah. And that I want to be one who is exercising like those apostles dependent on the Lord, trusting in in the fruit and just walking by faith. Yeah. I, I think another thing when I'm looking at the big picture of living under the authority of God yet living in the reality that I'm living under a different man authority, right? I I live within uh, this community. There's authorities here that dictate what I can and can't do. Um, When, when we commit ourselves to the authority of God and then, you know, have that authority given to us to some degree, um, you know, what does that look like for John the Baptist? Mm -hmm. It looked like him out of nowhere getting surprised and then executed but he was living under God's authority in the way that he was supposed to. Yeah, he was submitting to broken and failed human authority as a faithful uh, or a demonstration of faith in God. Yeah, yeah. He was submitting to very poor authority, and we'll see Jesus do the same thing. Exactly. He submits himself to this broken system of justice and lies and deception and... Uh, abdication and he's and it's not in spite of but through yeah. all of that that he accomplishes the father's purposes yeah so so what does that mean for me as someone who follows Christ it might mean that I have to suffer through some unwise poor authority on man side of things but I can live in confidence under God's authority and fight to give him my life no matter what that that may mean. Now, I don't think I'm going to be headed, be beheaded, and have my head right. on a platter somewhere. 
Um, but I'm certainly going to have those moments where I struggle with things of this world because of the authority of man, no doubt. And to realize that even through an extremely broken system and culture, God still accomplishes what he wants to. Yeah, man. And especially when his people live by faith in him and not in the system. It's attractive, right? One thing that's always like tripped me out about persecution um, going on in other places in the world is you know, the heart behind the people doing the persecuting is they want to end mm. this message, this spread, this new, you know, whatever that is. And in their efforts to slow it down, to stop it, that persecution actually gives fire mm-hmm. to those that are following Christ. Right. It's counterproductive. It's for counterproductive sure. and they keep doing it. Yeah. It's Man. fascinating to me. And I, and I think those people living in persecution, you know, they depend on God in a way that I don't. A lot of that because of circumstance and need, um, but because they're putting themselves under the authority of God, he's using them in a big way. Yeah. So good. Man. So, okay. Can I tell you one yeah. thing that cracks me up? Every time we do this, like the conversation always takes this big circle and it never fails. And uh, it's one of the reasons I love following the Lord. So in Esther, she has to decide. She has this moment where she realizes that she's the one that can do something about what's going on. So, so if you're not familiar with the story, um, Esther is a Jew, and um, she becomes the queen. Well, there's this guy that has a lot of power. He's an official. His name's Haman, and he wants to wipe out the Jews for several different reasons, mm-hmm. right? And so he tricks the king. And the king signs off on it. Well, they don't know that Esther is a Jew, but she comes to this moment where she realizes that she, if anybody's going to do something, it has to be her. It has to be her. And Mordecai, her her, her uncle, uncle, father figure says, yeah. "For you have been born for such a time as for this. such a time as this." Yeah. And so she's got to decide: is she going to trust the Lord and go to the king? to confront the issue or is she going to try to save herself and just let, let it be whatever's going to happen. Because going to the king could result in, could result in her death because her predecessor absolutely did not navigate life well and ended up losing her queenship. That's right. And so she puts her life on the line. Yeah. Trusting that God would do something. You know, her people fasted and prayed for her before she did that. Um, I look at John the Baptist. He followed Christ in such a way that he put his life on the line. Mm. You look at the life of Jesus. He wanted to stay faithful to what God the Father was doing, and it cost him his life. Yeah. Yeah, I think sometimes when people communicate the gospel, they try to, with the best of intentions, indicate that if you've got a messed up life, then giving your life to Jesus is going to make it all better. And certainly, if you are have been living unwise and selfish and in unrighteous ways, there's a lot of mess that comes with that. And submitting your life to the Lord uh, is is your best course of action. There are, and although you may be forgiven, there are, you still have to live in the mess that's been made by your unwise choices. So, uh, for instance, if somebody is uh, a convicted killer. 
and they come to know the Lord in prison, it doesn't mean that they're just all of a sudden let out of jail. Like they still have to live in the consequences of their sin. And, but there's also a sense that when you start to follow Christ, it doesn't necessarily mean your life's going to be easier. And that's a, that's, if you believe that, that is a lie. You look at the disciples and the apostles when Jesus is, uh, dies, resurrects, and then ascends, their life does not become easier, but it becomes much more difficult. Yeah. Esther, as she follows faithfully the Lord, her life doesn't become easier. Uh, and t- to some degree, it becomes simpler because if you can manage to just trust the Lord every day yeah. and do what he says, well, there's not a whole lot to think through. It That's becomes right. complicated when we give into the tension of, well, this is what the Lord wants me to do, but this seems easier, or this yeah, is what I want to do. For sure. Um, but I think you draw out a good point that, man, following the Lord is is costly. It it, it It's not always butterflies and rainbows. Yeah. And uh, there can be challenges, to be sure. So good time in the Word, dude. And I'm so glad you're studying Hebrew and bringing in Esther. <laughs> that seemed very appropriate today. The timing is wild. It's perfect. Like, I... I hope listeners or people viewing, like, hope hope people realize that this is not planned in scripture. Yeah, we, we didn't do. talk beforehand to go, hey, <laughs> no. what are you learning in, uh, yeah. in that Hebrew class? Yeah. So you can see if you're tracking with uh, the, this podcast that the Lord's timing is completely his own and it's very present that his hand is on this. Uh, if you are curious about that story of Esther, you're going to find that in the Old Testament. We've been in the Gospel of Mark, it's the New Testament, so if you have a Bible, just look in the table of context, uh, find Esther. It's a it's a great read. It's a short read, it's not yeah. super long, uh, but fascinating uh, story from, from history uh, and faithfulness of God's people, Esther and Mordecai. Uh, LJ, I love having you on this, this podcast. Thanks for having me on, man. Uh, for those that are tuning in and listening, uh, as we've been tracking through the Gospel of Mark, uh, if it's this episode or others, love it when you guys leave comments. Love it when you guys engage with each other in conversation. If something's come up in this text today or our conversation, a comment you want to make or a question you have, uh, leave it in the comments. Uh, yeah, dialogue and engage with this and wrestle with this stuff. If you have questions for me, take and read podcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can always uh, send me something and I uh, try to respond to those in a timely fashion. Also, the hat that I'm wearing, the take and read podcast hat, you can get those at 22beans.com. We thank you for 22beans and their support of the podcast, helping to um, with the production components of this and always grateful for guests like LJ. Thank you, Pastor LJ, for being here today. And for all of you out there, go take and read. <laughs>